Section 26 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1 by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Youth 1, Part 5. Christophe was conscious of extreme weariness and great uneasiness. He was, for no reason, worn out. His head was heavy, his eyes, his ears, all his senses were dumb and throbbing. He could not give his attention to anything. His mind leaped from one subject to another, and was in a fever that sucked him dry. The perpetual fluttering of images in his mind made him giddy. At first he attributed it to fatigue and the enervation of the first days of spring. But spring passed, and his sickness only grew worse. It was what the poets, who only touch lightly on things, call the unease of adolescence, the trouble of the cherubim, the waking of the desire of love in the young body and soul. As if the fearful crisis of all a man's being, breaking up, dying and coming to full rebirth, as if the cataclysm in which everything, faith, thought, action, all life, seems like to be blotted out, and then to be new-forged in the convulsions of sorrow and joy, can be reduced to terms of a child's folly. All his body and soul were in a ferment. He watched them, having no strength to struggle with a mixture of curiosity and disgust. He did not understand what was happening in himself. His whole being was disintegrated. He spent days together in absolute torpor. Work was torture to him. At night he slept heavily and in snatches, dreaming monstrously with gusts of desire. The soul of a beast was racing madly in him. Burning, bathed in sweat, he watched himself in horror. He tried to break free of the crazy and unclean thoughts that possessed him, and he wondered if he were going mad. The day gave him no shelter from his brutish thoughts. In the depths of his soul he felt that he was slipping down and down. There was no stay to clutch at, no barrier to keep back chaos. All his defenses, all his citadels, with the quadruple rampart that hemmed him in so proudly, his God, his art, his pride, his moral faith, all was crumbling away, falling piece by piece from him. He saw himself naked, bound, lying, unable to move, like a corpse on which vermin swarm. He had spasms of revolt. Where was his will, of which he was so proud? He called to it in vain. It was like the efforts that one makes in sleep, knowing that one is dreaming and trying to awake. Then one succeeds only in falling from one dream to another like a lump of lead, and in being more and more choked by the suffocation of the soul in bondage. At last he found that it was less painful not to struggle. He decided not to do so with fatalistic apathy and despair. The even tenor of his life seemed to be broken up. Now he slipped down a subterranean crevasse and was like to disappear. Now he bounded up again with a violent jerk. The chain of his days was snapped. 
in the midst of the even plain of the hours great gaping holes would open to engulf his soul christophe looked on at the spectacle as though it did not concern him everything everybody and himself were strange to him he went about his business did his work automatically it seemed to him that the machinery of his life might stop at any moment the wheels were out of gear at dinner with his mother and the others in the orchestra with the musicians and the audience suddenly there would be a void and emptiness in his brain he would look stupidly at the grinning faces about him and he could not understand he would ask himself what is there between these creatures and he dared not even say and me for he knew not whether he existed he would speak and his voice would seem to issue from another body he would move and he saw his movements from afar from above from the top of a tower he would pass his hand over his face and his eyes would wander he was often near doing crazy things it was especially when he was most in public that he had to keep guard on himself for example on the evenings when he went to the palace or was playing in public then he would suddenly be seized by a terrific desire to make a face or say something outrageous to pull the grand duke's nose or to take a running kick at one of the ladies one whole evening while he was conducting the orchestra he struggled against an insensate desire to undress himself in public and he was haunted by the idea from the moment when he tried to check it he had to exert all his strength not to give way to it when he issued from the brute struggle he was dripping with sweat and his mind was blank he was really mad it was enough for him to think that he must not do a thing for it to fasten on him with the maddening tenacity of a fixed idea so his life was spent in a series of unbridled outbreaks and of endless falls into emptiness a furious wind in the desert whence came this wind from what abyss came these desires that wrenched his body and mind he was like a bow stretched to breaking point by a strong hand to what end unknown which then springs back like a piece of dead wood of what force was he the prey he dared not probe for it he felt that he was beaten humiliated and he would not face his defeat he was weary and broken in spirit he understood now the people whom formerly he had despised those who will not seek awkward truth in the empty hours when he remembered the time was passing his work neglected the future lost he was frozen with terror but there was no reaction and his cowardice found excuses in desperate affirmation of the void in which he lived he took a bitter delight in abandoning himself to it like a wreck on the waters what was the good of fighting there was nothing beautiful nor good neither god nor life nor being of any sort in the street as he walked suddenly the earth would sink away from him there was neither ground nor air nor light nor himself there was nothing he would fall his head would drag him down face forwards he could hardly hold himself up he was on the point of collapse he thought he was going to die suddenly struck down he thought he was dead christophe was growing a new skin christophe was growing a new soul 
and seeing the worn-out and rotten soul of his childhood falling away, he never dreamed that he was taking on a new one, young and stronger. As through life we change our bodies, so also do we change our souls, and the metamorphosis does not always take place slowly over many days. There are times of crisis when the whole is suddenly renewed. The adult changes his soul. The old soul that is cast off dies. In those hours of anguish we think that all is at an end, and the whole thing begins again. A life dies. Another life has already come into being. One night he was alone in his room, with his elbow on his desk, under the light of a candle. His back was turned to the window. He was not working. He had not been able to work for weeks. Everything was twisting and turning in his head. He had brought everything under scrutiny at once—religion, morals, art, the whole of life. And in the general dissolution of his thoughts was no method, no order. He had plunged into the reading of books, taken haphazardly from his grandfather's heterogeneous library, or from Fogel's collection of books—books books of theology, science, philosophy, an odd lot, of which he understood nothing, having everything to learn. He could not finish any of them, and in the middle of them went off on divagations, endless whimsies, which left him weary, empty, and in mortal sorrow. So that evening he was sunk in an exhausted torpor. The whole house was asleep. His window was open. Not a breath came up from the yard. Thick clouds filled the sky. Christophe mechanically watched the candle burn away at the bottom of the candlestick. He could not go to bed. He had no thought of anything. He felt the void growing, growing from moment to moment. He tried not to see the abyss that drew him to its brink, and in spite of himself he leaned over and his eyes gazed into the depths of the night. In the void chaos was stirring, and faint sounds came from the darkness. Agony filled him. A shiver ran down his spine. His skin tingled. He clutched the table so as not to fall. Convulsively he awaited nameless things, a miracle, a god. Suddenly, like an opened sluice in the yard behind him, a deluge of water, a heavy rain, large drops downpouring, fell. The still air quivered. The dry, hard soil rang out like a bell and the vast scent of the earth, burning, warm as that of an animal, the smell of the flowers, fruit, and amorous flesh, rose in a spasm of fury and pleasure. Christophe, under illusion, at fullest stretch, shook. He trembled. The veil was rent. He was blinded. By a flash of lightning, he saw, in the depths of the night, he saw he was God. God was in himself. He burst the ceiling of the room, the walls of the house. He cracked the very bounds of existence. He filled the sky, the universe, space. The world coursed through him like a cataract. In the horror and ecstasy of that cataclysm, Christophe fell, too, swept along by the whirlwind which brushed away and crushed like straws the laws of nature. He was breathless. He was drunk with the swift hurtling down into God, God abyss, God gulf, fire of being, hurricane of life, madness of living, aimless, uncontrolled, beyond reason, for the fury of living. 
When the crisis was over, he fell into a deep sleep and slept as he had not done for long enough. Next day, when he awoke, his head swam. He was as broken as though he had been drunk. But in his inmost heart he had still a beam of that somber and great light that had struck him down the night before. He tried to relight it in vain. The more he pursued it, the more it eluded him. From that time on, all his energy was directed towards recalling the vision of a moment. The endeavor was futile. Ecstasy does not answer the bidding of the will. But that mystic exaltation was not the only experience that he had of it. It recurred several times, but never with the intensity of the first. It came always at moments when Christophe was least expecting it, for a second only, a time so short, so sudden, no longer than a wink of an eye or a raising of a hand, that the vision was gone before he could discover that it was. And then he would wonder whether he had not dreamed it. After that fiery bolt that had set the night aflame, it was a gleaming dust, shedding fleeting sparks, which the eye could hardly see as they sped by but they reappeared more and more often, and in the end they surrounded Christophe with a halo of perpetual misty dreams in which his spirit melted. Everything that distracted him in his state of semi-hallucination was an irritation to him. It was impossible to work. He gave up thinking about it. Society was odious to him, and more than any, that of his intimates, even that of his mother, because they arrogated to themselves more rights over his soul. He left the house. He took to spending his days abroad, and never returned until nightfall. He sought the solitude of the fields, and delivered himself up to it, drank his fill of it, like a maniac who wishes not to be disturbed by anything in the obsession of his fixed ideas. But in the great sweet air, in contact with the earth, his obsession relaxed. His ideas ceased to appear like specters. His exaltation was no less. Rather, it was heightened. But it was no longer a dangerous delirium of the mind, but a healthy intoxication of his whole being, body and soul, crazy in their strength. He rediscovered the world, as though he had never seen it. It was a new childhood. It was as though a magic word had been uttered. An open sesame. Nature flamed with gladness. The sun boiled. The liquid sky ran like a clear river. The earth steamed and cried aloud in delight. The plants, the trees, the insects, all the innumerable creatures were like dazzling tongues of flame in the fire of life writhing upwards. Everything sang aloud in joy. And that joy was his own. That strength was his own. He was no longer cut off from the rest of the world. Till then, even in the happy days of childhood, when he saw nature with ardent and delightful curiosity, all creatures had seemed to him to be little worlds shut up, terrifying and grotesque, unrelated to himself and incomprehensible. He was not even sure that they had feeling and life. 
They were strange machines. And sometimes Christophe had even, with the unconscious cruelty of a child, dismembered wretched insects without dreaming that they might suffer for the pleasure of watching their queer contortions. His uncle Gottfried, usually so calm, had one day indignantly to snatch from his hands an unhappy fly that he was torturing. The boy had tried to laugh at first. Then he had burst into tears, moved by his uncle's emotion. He began to understand that his victim did really exist, as well as himself, and that he had committed a crime. But if thereafter nothing would have induced him to do harm to the beasts, he never felt any sympathy for them. He used to pass them by without ever trying to feel what it was that worked their machinery. Rather, he was afraid to think of it. It was something like a bad dream. And now everything was made plain. These humble, obscure creatures became in their turn centers of light. Lying on his belly in the grass where creatures swarmed, in the shade of the trees that buzzed with insects, Christophe would watch the fevered movements of the ants, the long-legged spiders that seemed to dance as they walked, the bounding grasshoppers that leap aside, the heavy, bustling beetles, and the naked worms, pink and glabrous, mottled with white, or with his hands under his head and his eyes dosed, he would listen to the invisible orchestra, the roundelay of the frenzied insects circling in a sunbeam about the scented pines, the trumpeting of the mosquitoes, the organ notes of the wasps, the brass of the wild bees humming like bells in the tops of the trees, and the godlike whispering of the swaying trees, the sweet moaning of the wind in the branches, the soft whispering of the waving grass, like a breath of wind rippling the limpid surface of a lake, like the rustling of a light dress, and the lover's footsteps coming near and passing, then lost upon the air. He heard all these sounds and cries within himself. Through all these creatures, from the smallest to the greatest, flowed the same river of life, and in it he too swam. So he was one of them, he was of their blood, and brotherly, he heard the echo of their sorrows and their joys. Their strength was merged in his like a river fed with thousands of streams. He sank into them. His lungs were like to burst with the wind, too freely blowing, too strong, that burst the windows and forced its way into the closed house of his suffocating heart. The change was too abrupt. After finding everywhere a void, when he had been buried only in his own existence, and had felt it slipping from him and dissolving like rain, now everywhere he found infinite and unmeasured being, now that he longed to forget himself, to find rebirth in the universe. He seemed to have issued from the grave. He swam voluptuously in life, flowing free and full, and borne on by its current, he thought that he was free. He did not know that he was less free than ever, that no creature is ever free, that even the law that governs the universe is not free, that only death, perhaps, can bring deliverance. But the chrysalis issuing from its stifling sheath joyously stretched its limbs in its new shape, and had no time as yet 
to mark the bounds of its new prison. There began a new cycle of days, days of gold and fever, mysterious, enchanted, like those of his childhood, when one by one he discovered things for the first time. From dawn to set of sun he lived in one long mirage. He deserted all his business. The conscientious boy, who for years had never missed a lesson or an orchestra rehearsal, even when he was ill, was forever finding paltry excuses for neglecting his work. He was not afraid to lie. He had no remorse about it. The stoic principles of life, to which he had hitherto delighted to bend his will, morality, duty, now seemed to him to have no truth nor reason. Their jealous despotism was smashed against nature. Human nature, healthy, strong, free, that alone was virtue. To hell with all the rest. It provoked pitying laughter to see the little piddling rules of prudence and policy which the world adorns with the name of morality, while it pretends to enclose all life within them. A preposterous molehill, an ant-like people. Life sees to it that they are brought to reason. Life does but pass, and all is swept away. Bursting with energy, Christophe had moments when he was consumed with a desire to destroy, to burn, to smash, to glut with actions blind and uncontrolled the force which choked him. These outbursts usually ended in a sharp reaction. He would weep and fling himself down on the ground and kiss the earth and try to dig into it with his teeth and hands, to feed himself with it, to merge into it, he trembled then with fever and desire. One evening he was walking in the outskirts of a wood. His eyes were swimming with the light, his head was whirling. He was in that state of exaltation when all creatures and things were transfigured. To that was added the magic of the soft warm light of evening. Bays of purple and gold hovered in the trees. From the meadows seemed to come a phosphorescent glimmer. In a field nearby a girl was making hay. In her blouse and short skirt, with her arms and neck bare, she was raking the hay and heaping it up. She had a short nose, wide cheeks, a round face, a handkerchief thrown over her hair. The setting sun touched with red her sunburned skin, which, like a piece of pottery, seemed to absorb the last beams of the day. She fascinated Christophe. Leaning against a beech tree, he watched her come towards the verge of the woods, eagerly, passionately. Everything else had disappeared. She took no notice of him. For a moment she looked at him cautiously. He saw her eyes blue and hard in her brown face. She passed so near to him that, when she leaned down to gather up the hay, through her open blouse, he saw a soft down on her shoulders and back. Suddenly the vague desire which was in him leaped forth. He hurled himself at her from behind, seized her neck and waist, threw back her head, and fastened his lips upon hers. He kissed her dry, cracked lips until he came against her teeth that bit him angrily. His hands ran over her rough arms, over her blouse wet with her sweat. She struggled. He held her tighter. He wished to strangle her. She broke loose, cried out, spat, wiped her lips with her hand, 
and hurled insults at him. He let her go and fled across the fields. She threw stones at him and went on discharging after him a litany of filthy epithets. He blushed, less for anything that she might say or think, but for what he was thinking himself. The sudden unconscious act filled him with terror. What had he done? What should he do? What he was able to understand of it all only filled him with disgust, and he was tempted by his disgust. He fought against himself, and knew not on which side was the real Christophe. A blind force beset him. In vain did he fly from it. It was only to fly from himself. What would she do about him? What should he do to-morrow? In an hour, the time it took to cross the ploughed field to reach the road. Would he ever reach it? Should he not stop and go back and run back to the girl? And then— he remembered that delirious moment when he had held her by the throat. Everything was possible. All things were worth while. A crime even. Yes, even a crime. The turmoil in his heart made him breathless. When he reached the road he stopped to breathe. Over there the girl was talking to another girl who had been attracted by her cries. And with arms akimbo they were looking at each other and shouting with laughter. End of section 26